Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast's success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankin, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Between the Covers, or to davidnaman.com slash support, and give your support, and enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer and visual artist Ricky Ducournay. Ricky Ducournay is the author of three collections of short fiction, two books of essays, five books of poetry, and nine novels, including The Fanmaker's Inquisition, a Los Angeles Times Book of the Year, and The Jade Cabinet, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. She's also the recipient of the Lannan Literary Award for Fiction, the Bard College Arts and Letters Award, and an Academy Award in Literature. Ricky Ducournay is also a painter. Her paintings have been exhibited worldwide with recent shows in Massachusetts, Portugal, and Chile. She's also worked collaboratively with the writer Robert Coover, illustrating his stories, as well as illustrating the work of Jorge Luis Borges, Anne Waldman, and Kate Bernheimer, among others. The New York Times calls Ricky Ducournay a novelist whose vocabulary sweats with a kind of lyrical heat. The Nation calls her linguistically explosive and one of the most interesting American writers around. And Brian Evanson says her work replicates the enchantment we felt when hearing fantastic stories as children 
or when we first fell into books considered too mature for us. Her work spools out the struggle between the doctrinaire impulse to control and contain and the more dynamic, albeit sometimes equally dangerous, impulse to transgress, struggle, and create. We're lucky to have Ricky DeCornet here to talk about her latest book, Bright Fellow, just out from Coffeehouse Press. Welcome to Between the Covers, Ricky DeCornet. David, thank you. Brightfella opens with our protagonist, a young man named Stubb, whose mother has abandoned him and whose father has had a nervous breakdown. Living alone in a nearby college campus, sleeping in the lab, stealing clothes from gym lockers, sneaking away with food from various faculty members' houses when they aren't looking, and spending his days ensconced in the library, fascinated by the works of an eccentric, obscure anthropologist. So tell us how you arrived at this as the scenario to open the book. Uh, what the original idea was or impulse that started this scenario into motion? You know, it's always a very mysterious process. Um, things have a way of percolating for a long time, and then they pounce, and and this book did just that. I grew up on the Bard College campus, and I think it was probably inevitable at some point that I would need to write a book that took place there, and that's exactly what happened uh, I think growing up on a campus like that, and also at the time, it was much smaller than it is now. It was a really intimate experience and, um, and very tribal because we were such a small group of people, both faculty and students. Um, and because the campus was empty during field period, during the winter and then the long summers, that meant that the faculty brats had sort of free reign of the campus. And so... I had many extraordinary experiences, often um, simply alone, roaming that campus, and and so it had a lot of potency for me, a lot of power yeah. and kind of deep magic, and that just surfaced at some point. And and um, I think two things happened simultaneously: that Stubb appeared, the child appeared, as characters have a way of doing. You know, they just sort of there they are, they surge forth, and you have to deal with them. And, uh, and then very soon after, this second part of the book opened, and there he was on the campus making it his own. Hmm. But it surprised me. <laughs> yeah. No, as all, I'm imagining a lot of yeah. great writing does. Yeah, I think so. Uh, when a professor um, encounters Stubb in the library, Stubb makes up an imagined identity for himself. Um, he says that his name is Charter and that he's a visiting Fulbright scholar. Um, and later when this professor takes him in uh, and Charter becomes fascinated with a, a nearby uh, neighbor girl, she gives him a name, Brightfellow. So in a sense, our, our protagonist has, has three identities. Um, and the act of naming seems really important in, in Brightfellow, but it also seems important in your work overall to me. So I was curious if you could talk about uh, the naming and renaming of Stubb and also the process that went into the names uh, in Brightfellow overall. Well, that's so interesting, too, because that, too, seems to be something that is um, that surges from the book itself as it's being written. And, and so that moment when Stubb discovers that he needs to be called something far more interesting and really somewhat pretentious charter chase. I mean, that surprised me that 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 happened, but it was inevitable because, yeah, he was going to need a new name for his new identity. Um, But there are other books where, I don't know, I'm I'm always, um, I I don't really 
plan ahead of time what people would be called. They just sort of arrive with their names. And and often there are really deep, intuitive reasons for that that mm. then make a lot of sense to me afterward. I mean, for example, Entering Fire, my second novel, uh, there's a character called Cyrano, well, who's, who's related to Cyrano de Bergerac. His name is Septimus de Bergerac. And, um, and it turned out that alchemy was one of the threads that goes through that book. And I, at the time, hadn't realized that the, the real Cyrano de Bergerac, because he actually existed, was an alchemist. But oh, wow. somehow I picked that up. Yeah, so that, that was something I stumbled upon as I began to write the book and do research. There was Cyrano and his interest in alchemy. In the beginning of the book with Stubb playing on the linoleum floor as a child, um, he's playing explorer and imagining animals and birds, um, naming the animals and birds. Um, it feels like a scene out of the Garden of Eden, and there's even an interloping uh, snake in, in this imaginative world. But it feels like Stubb is the god of his imagination, and he's, he's naming the creatures much out of the, uh, the book mm-hmm. of Genesis. That doubles my curiosity about the power of names or the power of naming, which feels like maybe something that you're, you're repeatedly exploring. Oh, you're right. I mean, that, that very much interests me. And the, the, the tremendous paradox there is naming, naming in some ways about knowing, but it, as you know, it's also a kind of unknowing because the name can replace the thing. So we think we know it, we somehow own it because we've named it, but then we lose it's mystery, perhaps, and it's um, kind of a sacred power. So that's the risk involved. Yeah. But but the other thing is that, yeah, a child comes into the world open to so much and deeply curious and wildly alive and, and present, and every instant is the first instant. And so in some way, we are all Adam and Eve when we tumble into the world, and mm. And um, everything is sacred and dynamic, and so the naming yeah, is, is part of that process of, of knowing and claiming and becoming acquainted with, um, but also perhaps the risk is, yeah, banalizing in some way down the road. Yeah, no, I, I, I know there's people who feel like language is somehow damaging to the things that it, that it names and articulates, that... Um, it takes something away from the mystery of it by giving it the name. That if we don't know its name, maybe we experience it more directly somehow. But it feels to me like in your books that the naming um, is somehow about a language being a portal into communion yeah. with the things that are being named. No, you're totally right. I mean, that's really what interests me. And I think it's in the Deep Sioux. It is in the Deep Sioux, right? I talk about the... the um, the Islamic notion of the sacred, this ancient idea that that the the words are sung and um, and in the calligraphic tradition, um, the words have there's a little a little diamond shape above above the words that are sung, and at that point when you reach that mark, uh, the singer stops to take a breath, and the mark is also a spark, and so that breathtaking ignites the text and makes it makes it sacred again. It's the word of Allah again. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that idea, and I think that that's what I, I wish for in my own writing, that somehow the words spark one another and ignite on the page and become a really living thing. Mm-hmm. And there's also a tradition among the Berber where the when, um, when Islam took over, um, they embraced... Above all, 
seems the erotic text of the Koran, and the bride is is um, tattooed with henna on her breasts and belly, and the groom licks her body and swallows his saliva, wow. and in that way um, takes in the sacred erotic into his body. And that's such a gorgeous idea, but I, I love to think of these things when I'm writing, just to remember that, yeah, the whole process is in some really profound, you know, and God knows, not churchy way, <laughs> a, a sacred process, and mm-hmm. it's all about a deep living and the breath of Eros and kind of igniting the world. So you want the words to somehow spark a, wor- a world for the reader and in that way also vanish. So you don't even see the words anymore somehow. Hopefully right. you're just sort of there within the text and it's alive. So they're not obstacles to the experience, That's right. but vehicles. That's right. So yeah. how do you keep the language alive and not, um, you know, that, it, that it's always sparking and not somehow redu- reductive, yeah. reducing the world, but it's always igniting the world. That's, that's, the, that's the big issue for a writer, I think. I think so. Yeah. We're talking today to the writer Ricky Ducornet about her latest book from Coffeehouse Press, Bright Fellow. So this imaginative play that's happening for Stubb when he's a child at the very beginning is disrupted whenever his dad comes home. And I wondered about that also in relationship to um, how you've described uh, childhood and how we're all in childhood like Adam and Eve, in a sense, uh, imagining the world into being, and here the the parent comes home, mm-hmm. and it sort of disrupts the 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 process. Um, can you talk about the link between imagination and play, and perhaps um, childhood in relationship to Brightfellow? Well, I think I think the character Stubb is embodies all of childhood and its promise that every. Um, human infant comes into the world with this immense capacity to, to imagine and um, and reinvent the world, and that capacity is is endless and infinitely mutable. I think child by child, and the book is so much about the betrayal of that promise. Play is an immense part of that. I think um, it's so much a part of the evolutionary process, and we survive because we're. Because we are inventive, and play is all about invention. Play is all about uh, deeply creative impulse. So it enables us us to um, not only survive within the world, but live deeply within the world and keep things fresh and lively. Mm. You know, we become, I think, as a species, we're restless and we become maybe quickly bored or, you know, impatient with things that we know only too well and we're eager to move into new places all the time. I think um, that's why we're so curious about finally getting to Mars, you know. Right. Uh, I mean, we're explorers. And I think it's probably true of perhaps all living things. I mean, even plants, you know, nothing really stays in place. I suppose even rocks, you know, on some deep level are... You know, they're sparking. So, yeah, yeah, it seems to be the deep nature of things. And play is delightful. I'm, a, I'm also fascinated by the play of children and that uh, the deep connections that happen when we're, we're playing with one another. So his Stubbs relationship with this woman who appears in the house unexpectedly, it's a salutary moment, I guess. You know, it's, it really is what saves the day is having this deeply inventive, playful person come into his world and take him seriously and love him seriously, but engage in 
the creative process together you know, with him. It's a really important part of the book because it then it informs his capacity to survive. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I came across two instances you've talked about previously in your own childhood that seemed to be real pivotal moments for you. And one was uh, in your book of essays, your first book of essays, The Monstrous and the Marvelous, where you talk about an experience you had when you were three years old around language in reading an illustrated book of ABCs. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that if this is... It's enormous. Yeah. Can you can you talk about what happened uh, when you were when you were reading that book of ABCs? Yeah, that's it's so great you ask because it's it's really at the heart of everything. Um, it's at the heart of the of my experience. I think as a, a a person with an imagination, you know, at the heart of my creative life and maybe even my erotic life. I don't know, <laughs> but it's also at the heart of my teaching because when I I stumbled into teaching creative writing, I. I had a BA in painting, and you know, I suddenly found myself teaching university. And I, I wondered, you know, how do I, how do I do that? How do you teach writing? And you really can't. And I thought, well, there, there are those moments that, there are those sparking moments, those potencies that we all have, those memories that really matter. So, maybe that's that's the way in. So that experience of mine at the age of three was um, it's my first memory, and I, I was a toddler. I was. Uh, I think just turned three, and I was toddling across this very green lawn, which was punctuated by bright, big yellow dandelions, and there was a a, a bumblebee poised on one of them, and I elected to sit on it. That seemed like the smartest thing I could possibly do, and so I sat down on it, and I was stung, and it was an enormous moment because I recognized that I, I was at fault. You know, it was the first time that I recognized I was an actor in the world, and mm-hmm. and the first time that I recognized, you know, that I could I could do harm, and uh, and that I needed to be responsible. And I didn't have that vocabulary, but that moment was so important because I I somehow I knew this, and I had this beautiful ABC that was almost as large as I was, and the letter B was uh, the word buzz. And the illustration, which was gorgeous, was of a bumblebee uh, hovering over a blossom. And whenever I would open the book, there would be bee right away. And I, I was terrified and enchanted because I always felt as though I'd been stung. Mm. And so later, when I was realizing, gosh, I have to talk about this process now, um, I realized that language had really ignited for me in this powerful way because of that experience and that when I write, I look to the kind of excitement that I felt as a child when that those experiences happened. And so I call to my students to do the same thing, to think of their own deep zoo. And often animals are indeed involved, mm. except for some urban kids who are kind of clueless about that and are searching desperately for an experience with that kind of sacred punch, you know, it's harder for them to find. Mm. Um, some of them talk about museums of natural history. Um, so, yeah, so that's at the heart of everything. It really informs everything. And and you have another experience when you were a child on the Bard College campus yeah. uh, when you were around nine years old, and you see uh, in a biology lab a, a gestating chicken embryo. Um, what did that what did that So that was extraordinary. Do? So I was playing hide-and-seek, and, um, and I'm sure that was not part of our rules, but I, so with the faculty brats, so I, I ran into this open building. Everything was open at that time, and uh, up a couple of flights of stairs into this biology lab, and it was 
the end of the day and the sun was beginning to set and it came right down in front of these windows on the west hand side as I ran in and illuminated a cabinet across from it, glass cabinet, that was packed with things in bottles, including the entire gestation of the hum- uh, of the of the chicken, and also the entire gestation of the human fetus. So there were many bottles, in fact, of this entire fetal development. So yeah, so I was about nine, and and the whole book of nature there it was open for me, and I completely forgot about the fact that I was playing hide-and-seek. I just remember I sat down on the floor and just looked at that until it, it was dark. Wow. So what, what's really interesting to me when thinking about these experiences and then reading Bright Fellow, you have these powerful childhood memories uh, which show this sort of inextricable connection between human and animal and human and nature. They remind me of the scene when Stubbs' dad hires a nanny one who happens to have just come out of a mental institution and his, his nanny is reading to Stubb and explaining to him that the words are creatures. And she says that, quote, when they collide into one another, they are like animals that change shape before your eyes. They leave tracks across the page. They are round, soft, thorny. They have edges. They come together in order to delight or derange us. They come together. They hold hands. They caress. They bruise one another. They force the soul down deeper. They make us thirsty for unimaginable things. And then she points out the letter H, which looks like a harp, which reminds me of that experience with you and the bee and the bee. Um, I'd love to hear you talk about the hidden nature within letters, particularly because of your background in visual arts. But also I'm thinking how language at one point was all visual arts when languages weren't yet phonetic languages and they were pictorial languages. Um, And we still even in English, I think, have traces of that. I think of, like, the cue being the monkey's tail. or um, I didn't know the cue was a monkey's tail. Th- that is one of the, one of the p- theories of the origin of the cue. Oh, wow. Well, language has always fascinated me, and, um, and I think in part because as a child I went to— I was really interested in Egypt, and I was really interested in the birth of language— what, there's a figure in the book, um, Werner, I mean, what is his name? <laughs> Vanderloon. Um, it's Werner Vanderloon, right? <laughs> um, this is really bad that I can't remember my own character's name. But he's based on Heinrich Van Loon. And my father gave me um, his book, Ancient Man, which is, read it now, it's, it's dated in, in a number of ways, but it's it was a magical book for a small child. And and um, and filled with these wonderful drawings. But he talks about the beginning of language and cuneiform, and I was fascinated by that and then became interested in Egypt and read Saram's God's Graves and Scholars. I don't know if anybody reads that book anymore, but it was just a wonderful book about the discovery of Tut's tomb and and also the, the origins of, um, of language and great architecture and culture. And so I became interested in hieroglyphs and really fascinated by, and I think because of the experience with the B, you know, and the letter B, um, that connection with uh, a deep looking at the world of nature and and uh, a way to find the way to convey it. And, and so the alphabet 
and then um, thought I'd become an Egyptologist at one point. And then suddenly my father had received a Fulbright to teach at the university in Cairo for a year. So we, we actually landed up in Egypt around the time I had, I was 10 and a half, became really passionate about such things. And so there I was surrounded by exactly what you're talking about, those marvelous words made of creatures and things, and, and many of them um, so very visible. Is there something you're saying? Or identifiable. Yeah. Is, it, yeah. Is there something you're saying by having the babysitter having come out of a, a mental institution in the sense that I wondered, yeah. I guess, is she really mad as, as she's called or is or is it that adults would view someone who would look at language that way as as potentially being mad because they're not looking at them solely based on their most utilitarian function. David, you're such a fabulous reader because yes, of course. I mean, she so she at some point Stubbs says to her, "Is it true you had a hole burned in your head?" And she says, "Yes, um, <laughs> uh, yes." Because I, there was a poet, you see, I think it was a poet, something, I'm paraphrasing my book, but a poet sitting on a chair deep in my head, and they thought it better to get rid of her or something. And and um, and such things happen all the time. You know, clearly she's a visionary person. I mean, you can tell by the stories and the way she plays with Stubb that she has this wonderful capacity to imagine and engage with others and yet she's been so terribly wounded so yes I mean I, I do think it's not an accident that um, that the creative imagination is the first thing that's punished when tyrannies take over and um, poets find themselves the ones to have their hands cut off you know right away and um, as well as lawyers and you know and and scientists and I think it's not an accident in our country right now that there is this real uh, hatred for science as there has been for so long a real dismissive attitude towards art because the creative imagination is constantly in flex flux and cannot be pinned down and it's the great place of subversion whether it's art or science I mean it's all about far seeing so for me the the tragedy that we're living and seeing unfold for our species is this fear of the creative imagination, which is really a fear of, of deep living, a fear of life itself, a fear of the erotic breath. So it's nihilism. You know, what is that all about? And, and, and do we have enough time to somehow navigate our way through this and come out the other end and manage to put it all back together again or find a new way to live better? I don't know, but I think it's a major issue, and I, I really think it's absolutely essential that we confront that within ourselves. I mean, this fear of the imagination and, and also fear of the body. It's mm -hmm. pernicious, and it's worse than pernicious. It's turning out to be mortal. We're talking to, today to Ricky Ducournay about her latest book, Bright Fellow. So Bright Fellow is, is a standalone novel, but also the second part of a, of a trilogy that you're working on. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you have written a tetralogy before <laughs> where the relationship yeah. between the books was very clear in the sense that they are all related to different element, earth, air, fire, and water. And I was curious what the, um, the, the substructure or superstructure of this trilogy is. What, what, what holds these together as a trilogy, even as they do stand as independent books? So betrayal. So the, the, and, and I think it probably will be a tetralogy actually, as it turns out. Um, 
So betrayal, the first one, Netsuke or Netsuke, uh, is about a, a psychoanalyst who, when the book opens, is tumbling into a psychotic break full time and, uh, and betraying his own promise and his own self and his patients and everyone around him, really. And then Brightfellow is about so many things, but betrayal of childhood promise is certainly at the heart of it. And the third, third one I'm thinking of, I lived in Algeria for two years after the Algerian War for Independence, and that's a book that has been put aside, and I really want to return to it. So I'm thinking a third small novel about the betrayal of a people, you know, betrayal of a country and its, yeah. its promise, um, betrayal of a population, which would be the Algerian population, especially the intellectuals within Paris during the time of the war. So I really want to return to that. And I am thinking of a of a fourth, um, which really would be about the betrayal of friendship and um, and a, a kind of mad loving. <laughs> mm. So so we'll see. But yeah, probably I like the idea of, of a very economical novel, a really short novel. There's um, something deeply appealing to me to, in some ways, write things that are complex. I mean, there's a lot going on, but but yet it's somehow down to the bones. Yeah, there's no extraneous matter. <laughs> Can we hear a little bit of the prose? Yes. From Brightfellow? So, 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 so Stubb at, at this point is, um, is living on the campus stealthily and figuring out you know, how, to, how to survive, what, where are the safe places, and, and also how to eat and how to eat well. Food is, and housing are very important to him, of course, as to anyone who's without a home. So last summer, when all the families on faculty circle had walked over to the dean's house to watch the fireworks, I slipped into a kitchen and feasted on what remained of a Fourth of July supper, the few ribs sweet and sticky. I was nearly overcome by the taste, the slaw swimming in the bottom of the Danish bowl, the rolls in their basket, the butter in its dish. I feasted secure in the knowledge that they, in their affluence, swept along in the bustle and comforts of family life, heightened by a national holiday, would never notice a few ribs reduced to bone, the salad bowl licked clean. I am, as are all men, mindful, artful, perceptive, creative, and an animal, determined to survive, to sleep in safety and not go hungry. I imagine that my chosen life says something about other men, about man's nature, and that, in spite of all these digressions, I am leaning toward greater things, capable of greatness. What if my life is not only the mirror of my own thwarted destiny or the mirror of mankind's thwarted destiny, but the mirror of my species' capacity to overcome the worst odds, the odds of a collapsed infancy in a world shuddering with sadness? It is true I could be doing better than counting cans of minestrone and bathing in sinks that reek of formaldehyde. I acknowledge this freely, but back to the moment. As I return to my current den, drawn as are the fish by starlight, my path is illumined by the stars and the moon. The night sky has a child's color. It is the color of her hair. The twilight is the color of her eyes. The earth is the color of her mood. And I can hear her almost imperceptible wheezing in the breeze. Her perfume is a perfume caught among the thorns of the blackberry bushes that line the path. And I think, as I approach the night library, that she is all things to me, 
star, astral light, perfume of bramble, moonlight, and secrecy, life itself, asthma. And asthma is the name of the child he is totally enamored with. Well, I want to ask a question about this theme of betrayal in, in this trilogy, but and also the fall from innocence and the fall from Eden. Um, so Vanderloon, the anthropologist that Stubb is, is, a, is, a, is um, enchanted by, he, um, he describes play as a form of magic, a powerful form of magic, and that there's two types mm-hmm. of people, the, the people who play and the, and the killjoys, and that play is essential to becoming human. And in light of that, I was wondering um, if you consider the various ways that Stubb reinvents himself, um, taking on new names, is this the resourcefulness outside of the rules of society? Is that him becoming more human in your mind? Or do you see this as, see these deceptions as part of his fall from innocence? No, I think, I think they're born of this thwarted innocence very much. You know, that his longing to connect, his longing to be one with the world. And so you know, he's desperately trying to find ways to do that. And, and because he's been so thwarted, um, it's, it's fraught because he doesn't quite know how to do it either, you know, because he, he can't really quite fit in. He's been isolated far too long. So he's struggling. He's wildly imaginative. But um, in the long run, he doesn't quite have what it takes to, to finally find a home. Yeah. Publishers Weekly described Brightfellow as about the psychological horror that lurks beyond childhood innocence. And while we've talked a lot about play and imagination in relationship to childhood, we haven't talked about the other aspect of your work that seems to be twinned with the imaginative faculty, and that's uh, that of morality, um, which re- to me, it seems like morality and imagination both reoccur in your work mm-hmm. and are, are very present mm-hmm. in, in Brightfellow as well. Um, that unlike, say, a postmodern novel, there's a sense of good and evil, I feel like, in your in your work. To the point where I, where it feels like there's a sense of par- pos- like hints at or nods toward parable or fable, and I was wondering how that sounded to you, if that felt true or, or not so much. No, it, I think you're a wonderful reader. I think um, that definitely sounds true, and I think, you know, that moment with the bee, you know, realizing at the age of three somehow that one was a responsible actor in the world. I mean, that was in so many ways a seminal moment. And and then as one grows, you know, as I grew and as one grows, I saw um, there was so much there was so much evil in the world, you know, in, in terms of terrible darkness. I mean, there were wars constantly and um, and this enormous risk of nuclear annihilation. I mean, I grew up I grew up with that as a constant threat. And um, this weird terror of, of Martians appearing and racism and all of those things, it was clear to me were somehow related because I also grew up during the McCarthy era. And so, era, <laughs> error. Um, <laughs> I like and, that better. Yeah, I do too. And, and who are tumbling right back into it. It's the same nightmare. It keeps raising its head, you know. It's... Um, but the it's word, terrifying. The word morality is very freighted. It is very freighted, and yeah, and one doesn't want to be self-righteous about things. So I, I feel, for me, the question of you know moral issues, um, moral issues really matter, and and what I the way I see it is a, a question of inquiry. You know, where where 
where does this come from? Recently, there was an extraordinary interview that Rachel Maddow did uh, with a young man from London, a very young guy, I think in his late 20s, who came out as someone who could have become a terrorist because he was, he said he was um, within an Islamic community and he he couldn't quite acknowledge it to himself, but he was gay. He couldn't come out to himself because it was too terrible a thing. And and so what happened at some point, he went to the imam to talk about these these pulsions and was told what you need to do is enter more deeply into religion. And he said, what happened is I became radicalized, that I wanted desperately to chase my own self from myself. And that the only way to do that, or so it seemed, was to become radicalized. And the radicalization became really dangerous until I found myself in a situation where I imagined that terrorism is the only way that I could become clean, that then I would be forgiven, and then I would I would die, I would take people with me, but then I would be allowed into paradise. And this is an extraordinary revelation. And so he said, I feel now, and then he said, I realized, I awoke one day and realized what was happening to me, and I stepped back. And then I was finally able to embrace my homosexuality. But he, he was speaking to Rachel right after uh, what happened to or in Orlando. And he said, I feel at this time in history, I have to speak out. I have to speak about my story because it is a key to, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but a key yeah. to all the terrible things around us. And that question, you know, that um, that. Fear of the body, the body of others, is so often about the fear of one's own body and one's own profound sexuality, and which is overpowering. You know, it's one of the, the great powers within our lives. And so, um, and also the fear of the other seems to always take place within the body, the body of the other. I and mean, there's always this crazy kind of mythical stuff about the, the bodies of black men in in our deeply racist country, or or uh, Native American men, you know, there's, there's, it's all so fraught. So for me, that's what the moral issues are about. You know, wh what is the origin of this terrible mistake? And, and how do we set it to rights? But we have to acknowledge it. And, and so a moral inquiry, I guess, is a language for it. Yeah. But I realize how fraught that is, because of course, morality you often think of, of uh, real um, killjoys who want to impose a dogmatic system on us. I'm not, yeah, I don't want to be there. Yeah. Know? Well, speaking of origins, there's there's a similar origin to the thwarted imagination of our two male protagonists in Brightfellow and, and previously in, in Natsuke, uh, in the sense that Stubb is, is attracted to Asma, who's the same age of when his, uh, he was when his mother disappears from his life. So there's this connection that he sees of himself and asthma yeah. age-wise to the trauma that happened when he was younger. And in Natsuke, you have, we, with the, the sexually depraved psychoanalyst narrator, he traces the origins of his desires to the wounding by his mother when he misunderstands the phrase land of milk and honey. Yeah. Um, and it feels like there's these, these pivotal moments that the parents probably, well, certainly in Natsuke's case, the parent probably doesn't even realize that it was a traumatic moment, but um, a moment that changes everything for the child. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's so great that you picked up on that, actually, because I didn't make that connection, but it, of course it's there. Because the land of milk and honey, I mean, really it stands in for Eden and um, a play, you know, the paradise that every child uh, should ha enter into and doesn't. I mean, I think of this current generation of homeless people who are who are being torn apart, and 
uh, may never find a home, or if they do, may no longer be capable of living within a home. And they, they, we're seeing tens of thousands of people, millions of people actually at this point, who are, who are in that, that situation. So it's, it's an immense responsibility um, now upon us to, I think community by community really, say we are willing to bring in, you know, whatever it is, 10 people, 100 people, 300 people, three people yeah. uh, across the globe. Because otherwise, yeah, we're seeing the collapse of our, not only our ecology, but, but our, our species. In talking about the, the fear of, of imagination and the fear of, of the other and the fear of our, even our own bodies as other, um, I was curious about the gender dynamics in in your books a little bit in the sense that I was left with an open question. Often you have male narrators. Um, and I wondered if this trilogy of or tetralogy of betrayal was looking at a fall from innocence that is a human fall of innocence or whether it was more specifically the fall of innocence of of men, uh, and mm-hmm. um, especially because of the the wounding by mothers that happens mm-hmm. to both of them, mm-hmm. um, do you see it as a as a a gendered uh, inquiry or you not know, necessarily? It's a very fair question, you know. And I, I certainly do have female protagonists, but I do tend towards the male protagonist, and and I think it's simply because. In my own experience of growing, the person who really was a nurturer was my father. And so as a child, I was always um, more interested intellectually in, in my father for all kinds of reasons. But he was the one who was, who was interested in my mind and, um, and so was a, a kind of primary fascination, you know, the, the, the workings of the male mind. And I always felt more at home intellectually. And I, I think, too, things have shifted dramatically, but uh, it took me a long time to find that kind of intellectual companionship, just, uh, for, I think, for cultural reasons mm-hmm. among uh, women. That's no longer true. But, but certainly in my formative years, uh, the real powers had been men for obvious reasons. Yeah. And, um, and then what's more is I had a mother who was you know, many ways, I think quite an extraordinary person, but she, she was also very harmed and, and harmful. And so the, the place of safety was so much, uh, not only with my father, uh, who was very loving and compassionate, deeply compassionate guy, but, but also, um, intellectually very fearless. And, um, and so to be in conversation with him was always, was always very exciting because I always felt as a small child that, everything could be engaged somehow. And that had such an impact on me intellectually that when I became a teacher, I found that I I wanted to make the place in which we met together, that I met with the students, so-called, with the other writers, would be a safe place where anything could be taken on. So the the work really was about how do we do this gracefully, how do we do this rigorously, elegantly, in interesting ways. But but there is no taboo here. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to writer and visual artist Ricky Ducournay about her latest book, Bright Fellow, just out by Coffeehouse Press. You've, you've said before in interviews that 
you think the imagination is genderless, that there isn't a male imagination and a female imagination. And, and yet you've also talked about the belief in a sexual soul. And those aren't necessarily contradictory, mm-hmm. but I, I, would, I was wondering if you could unpack those two f- f- for me. Yeah, I've always felt that. I mean, I kind of dislike this sort of sexed notion um, because because I do think it's extremely porous and, and extremely fluid, and um, and I, I also f- f- am disquieted by what is returned, which is this distrust of a writer writing about, um, or, you know, from from a place or from within a voice that is not in quote their own. Because I think the the issue is so much vaster than that. You know, I think the wonderful thing about our species is that we're capable of of empathy, and that we are really deeply curious about one another, and that we are we are able because we are compassionate and far seeing to imagine. You know, to, you know, to to do the work not only of loving and and receiving um, um, a living reality of of another or another culture but also of investigating it and and coming to terms with it and and a kind of intimate experience of it you know i think that culture has always been that we've always as a species been absolutely fascinated with other cultures i mean heck even animals are so fascinated with one another's cultures you know so i mean I'm, i'm thinking about how how interested crows are in what we do and and vice versa. I mean, I all these know all these people who are absolutely fascinated by their their bird neighbors. You know. Yeah, I, I loved that in your conversation with Lydia Yuknovich last night. You talking about mm-hmm. the play in curiosity of of other species, including plants. That was very fascinating. I didn't realize you were there. Yeah, I was, I was hidden there in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read I read Deep Zoo, your collection, your latest collection of essays, at the same time as I read uh, Bright Fellow and. I was just seeing so many um, cross currents, and I don't know if it's because you were immersed in the same in the same sea of ideas at the same time, or not. But I, I was I was wanting to raise some of them and hear what you thought about it. But Great. Um, so it seems like they're in conversation to me. Um, the assertion that nature is essential to living fully as a human being seems like it, it plays a role in, in the, the fictional narrative and certainly plays a role in, in the essays. Um, your examination of Casper Hauer, the, the boy who was, um, who claimed to be living in a dark, in darkness, in a, in a basement for much of his childhood in the essay collection. While, not Stubbs' experience, the parentlessness of that experience, the the lack of uh, guidance and um, mirroring back that happens for Stubb felt like that was somehow connected. And even the the role of the linoleum when Stubb is playing on the linoleum, and we see the linoleum in the Deep Sioux connection, Deep Sioux essay collection. And um, and lastly, the um, the father in Bright Fellow was once selling seeds. Mm-hmm. And then becomes a plumber. Mm-hmm. And you speak a lot about seeds in Deep Zoo, which I know I might be reading too much into these choices, but I did have a double vision as I was reading Bright Fellow. Because I was, as I mentioned earlier, I wondered if there was an aspect of fable and parable. And I, I, I didn't know if there were allegor- allegorical elements to Bright Fellow. For instance, was there a symbolism from him moving from selling seeds to fixing plumbing? Was that like a fall for for the father? It's very understated mm-hmm. in the book, mm-hmm. um, and I, I was I was curious your your thoughts about um, 
the way a reader approaches that um, as as symbol or as just a matter of fact detail. Oh, that's so marvelous. I mean, I have to say, I write. Yeah, I think that's the choice of the readers, because I write very organically, and and which is why things reappear. I mean, the book of essays. Those essays happened over many years, and so there are themes that kept resurfacing because they I kept kind of worrying them like a bone. You know, I wasn't really done with them. And Casper Hauser was a big one. And it's great that you put these things together because Casper Hauser landed up in a dungeon, actually, a castle dungeon at the age of four, and he was chained to the floor in this dark dungeon, having been brought up probably as a prince. So he had been learning Latin and, you know, all these languages. He had a drawing instructor. And suddenly there he was, taken from absolutely everything, chained to the floor, with the only light coming from this small window that had an iron um, grate that looked like a sprout, a sprouting plant. And that's all he could look at. The light, the little light that there was came through that window. It's extraordinary. He was apparently in a kind of um, catatonic state most of the time. He would be brutally awakened, often beaten awake by his keeper. He was given bread, which fortunately was bread from the 1800s, so it was made with, uh, um, what is that, dark, dark syrupy stuff, um, Molasses. So, yeah, so a molasses based yeast bread um, and whole wheat. So that meant that there was there was some protein and water and and um, probably very good spring, you know, well water. So somehow he, he managed to survive. And and what that's one of the most heartbreaking stories. I mean, I, I just find it almost unbearable to think about. The betrayal of Caspar Hauser's infancy, but I was fascinated when I realized that perhaps one of the things that also kept him alive was the fact that there was this sprouting plant that he looked at every day when he looked out, and that was really all he had. A he had a toy, a couple of toy horses and a toy dog made out of wood, and that was it. That's all he had with him. So he is, for me, the prime example of all that is wrong. I mean, what happened to him was a deeply immoral thing, you know. Right. All the promise of the world really is there in Caspar Hauser. And when, when he was finally released and found and saved briefly before he was murdered, um, he began to draw. And he, he did these beautiful drawings, and one of them was of a sprouting plant. Mm. Well, that's a good segue to something that I'd really love to lean into and explore with you from the Deep Zoo collection, which is... It's one of the more troubling parts of Deep Zoo and interesting parts of Deep Zoo is your confrontation with the never-ending humanization of the natural world. Mm -hmm. So the way in which we're both losing the natural world and and humanizing the Mm -hmm. natural world. And I was actually hoping you'd read a small piece to set up my question, if you didn't mind. Let me see if I can find it in here. Okay. Imagine with me an absolute book of unnatural nature, fully immersive, polysensory, eloquent, in which everything is reactive, self-replicating, a mutable, complex, and functioning system with which the reader, who is now far more than reader, 
may interact as he does with the real. Will such an artifice allow us to be more fully alive, more fully human? Will we be less fearful of the palpable dissimulations of our own imaginations than we are of the real itself? When we dissolve into and interact with fully embodied avatars, will we cease to fear our own bodies and bodies other than our own? When the things of the world are all of our own invention, will we finally allow ourselves to cherish them? Will our worlds be sparked with the breath of Eros, or will Eros vanish? When our tigers are striped to fit our fancy, and the ruined ocean is replaced by an apparition in which phantom orcas call out to one another and cling on, will the world finally take on real significance? You say in another place in the collection that the forest is the place human dreams come from, and that the paradox of the real is that a thing must be dreamed before it can be real. Um, so my question around what you just read and around that is, is concerning this. As the forests as the real forests are being destroyed, it seems to me we are also seeing an impoverishment of dreams within literature. Um, you mentioned you mentioned some of your students, urban students, and my my question sort of leads there. It seems like in older stories, and particularly in fairy tales, forests are a place of transformation. They're a place of danger, and revelation, and and possible transformation. We now mostly have stories with the complete absence of the non-human other in them. So like the Brooklyn apartment story, where the inscrutable otherness is the other person's consciousness. I was wondering if you saw that as a trend too. It seems to me like there's this big shift in, in, in at least in short stories in general, toward uh, the absence of the other, the non-human mm-hmm. other. I think it's... An immense, I think it's an unfathomable tragedy, and I I, I do think that it's created enormous existential anxiety. I think it's driving us mad. I think I think the fact that our our jungles and our forests uh, and our marshes are all devoid or nearly devoid of wildness of wild creatures, the fact that we're not having those conversations with other creatures, that our skies are not full of birds, that our fields are not full of butterflies. I mean, damn it, I've seen three butterflies this year. I was in Boulder recently walking along Boulder Creek, and I saw three birds. You know, I was there for 10 days, for heaven's sakes. It's, It's heartbreaking, even if, I think, even if one has been brought up in an urban environment and uh, and not even imagined that all that was there. I think the loss is within us. It's so profound because we evolved with all these creatures. You know, they're in terms of our DNA, we're really closely related to all of them. And and I, I yeah, I do think that loss is just beyond words. And I I heard something recently. I became fascinated with the NASA app. And uh, one of the scientists was talking about the fact that we can, within 100 years, and we're talking about this very seriously, because we're finding ways of getting to Mars very quickly, within a month, for example. So talking about making Mars into a habitable place, it would take about a century to do this, to bring in an atmosphere, to melt the waters, to have lakes and rivers, and uh, develop a soil and all of that. But we could do that within 100 years. And then, And then the scientist said... 
you know, what will be happening is that we will be bringing the creatures with us and the plants with us and that they will be evolving in this new place. And we will be evolving along with them and we will become different. But the fact, which is very moving to me, but the fact that he was talking about bringing this community, you know, this worldly community along, I found very reassuring. I was able to sleep that night, because I don't want it to vanish, you know, even though I'm a realist and I realize that planets do vanish. You know, everything blossoms and dies, you know, why not planets? But it seems too soon, you know, and I feel like our species, despite its mistakes, has still such imagined, I mean, just unimaginable um, talent and uh, possibility. So I hate to see it stop so soon. I want to ask you about uh, an event that happened at AWP in Seattle in, in 2014. I was in the audience of a panel oh, that you were at, um, The Magic and the Intellect. And I don't know how much you remember that, but I'm just going to recall my memory yeah. of it. And I would love to hear you speak speak to this if you do remember a lot of it. But um, on this panel... Um, it was, it was a standing room only packed room, uh, full of people. Lucy Corin, who's been on this show on Between the Covers mm-hmm. before, um, she started talking about magic, the spell of words, about shoring up against pain through the rhythm of language. And then she began reading from her novel in progress, which she warned people that was going to be, uh, trying. And it was a scene where a father sits at the hospital bed of her, of his daughter who had tried to kill herself. And he sits at her hospital bed um, and starts reading her dead baby jokes. And um, it was remarkable what I felt like happened in the room. So at the beginning, people were laughing and there were dead baby jokes. They were funny and they were perverse and vulgar. And, And then after a minute or two, it felt like the room became, something shifted in the room. The molecules in the air shifted and people were starting to, shift also and um the air became heavy people didn't know what were what was going on um they felt held potentially held captive to this narrative whose destination was unknown and they kept going and the 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 dead baby jokes amassed and then eventually um someone interrupted lucy and said what in the world are you doing like why are you doing this to us and in fact, I think the person even said something like, I've been waiting 20 years to see Ricky Ducournay, and um, I didn't want to have to wait through this to do it. And then people started yelling at that person and saying, let her finish. And then other people were defending the person that, mm-hmm. that, um, that was upset, and several people left. And um, it was a pretty traumatic moment in the room. And you stood up, and you contextualized... Um, what you felt like Lucy Corrin's project was, that it was an examination of, of I, I'm paraphrasing now, so I, I, if you remember, I would love to hear what you actually said, but something about um, the dangers of putting the human and the human baby, um, or this was an interrogation of like, are always putting the human and the human baby first? I do remember what I said in part. I mean, yeah. you know, um, I said, this is, what what Lucy is doing, indeed, is almost it's almost impossible to listen to this. It's it's absolutely terrifying. It's deeply distressing, and I understand your distress. But this is also what the writer does. This is part of what we do. We bring attention to the terrors of the world. And I said, right now, 
what she's describing in these terrible so-called jokes is happening, for example, in Syria right now to babies and children in Syria. And, and so I see what she's doing as, as a, a way to kind of break into the day. It's a way of awaking us all to the terrible things that we are capable of, once again, as a species. Um, recently, I was asked to write an essay on the Marquis de Sade for a surrealist encyclopedia that's coming out with Bloomsbury Books in 2017, I think. It's a very exciting venture. And I have written about Saad. And uh, one of the things that I, I said in my essay is we can no longer read Saad the way I think maybe André Breton read Saad. That is to say, to, to read him as um, a, a kind of profoundly and often terrifying but also funny, you know, in terms of dark humor, um, um, truth-sayer about the Catholic Church at its worst. But but there's so much else going on in Saad, and, and considering what's happening in our world, you really cannot read 120 Days of Sodom, for example. I mean, it's an impossible book to read anyway. He himself could never read it because it's such a terrifying book, but he could never revise it, he said. But, I mean, for example, as we speak, there's a child in Syria, a young boy tied to a wheel. That wheel is spinning. He's being burned with cigarettes. He'll be burned with cigarettes until he dies. That's happening now, probably at this moment in Syria, or something equally, equally terrifying. Mm. Now, the world ends there. So I felt that what Lucy was doing was, yes, deeply unsettling, but it was bringing attention to this very fact. And, yeah, and in terms of moral vision... As a, as a species, if we're going to survive, we have to have a moral vision in that sense. And again, not a churchy sense, you know, a dogmatic, diminishing sense, but but in, in, in terms of what Calvino talks about, dreaming very high dreams, that we're better than this. We must be better than this if we are to survive. Hmm. It's a dark moment. Yeah. yeah. We talked at the beginning about potentially having you end with this this piece from Deep Sioux. A world worth wanting cherishes the risks of wildness, and this includes not only the lavish elephants and meteoric crabs, but the stars we can no longer see, the whales hemorrhaging on our beaches, the serene mollusks and coral reaches, Gilgamesh as filmed by the brothers Quay, the eroticized Martians imagined by Clarice Lispector, the Amazon's poison frogs, the Sahara's thick-coming locusts, the vociferous parrots, William Gass's omen setter, the worms in their legions and the yellow boas, Rosamond Purcell's and Van Leeuwenhoek's third eyes and Borges's Aleph, the oracle at Delphi and Gaudi's dream of an unbounded architecture, the necessary nightmares of David Lynch, Borges's incandescent blindness, Prince Genji's amorous encounters, the unstoppable mulattas of Latin American literature, the collages of Max Ernst, his lop-lop, and above all, the solitary tradition of a tusked and savage, and need I say it, subversive storytelling in which the world is reinvented, reinvigorated, and restored to us in all its sprawling splendor over and over again. It was really wonderful having you here today, Ricky. It's wonderful for me, my God. Such a brilliant reader. 
We were talking today to Ricky Ducournay, the author of The Deep Zoo and Bright Fellow. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Neiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.